0: For those that are visiting us today, or if you haven't been here for a few weeks, thanks for that introduction, Um, we are going through a series called Name Above All Names, looking at the person and work of Jesus. Uh, We've covered a few things, like, what have we covered? The Conquering King, True Prophet, High Priest, uh, and the Seed of the Woman, and today we are looking at Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. One evening, a couple of weeks ago, I was fortunate enough to uh, accompany my daughter to her 21st birthday present, uh, which was tickets to go see a couple of fellows called the Piano Guys. Actually, a few others here, I think, that were there as well and enjoyed the show immensely. Um, I found myself, as we made our way into Theby Theatre, uh, sitting next to a gentleman who seemed to know every second person who walked in, sort of waving to people as they were finding their seats. So I said, said to him, you seem to know a lot of people. And He said, oh, there's a lot of people from our community here. I thought, oh, okay. The way you said it, I thought, I reckon that, and the way, a few other things as well, I reckon that's a faith community of some sort that he's talking about. But he didn't say church. Anyway, I mentioned that to him. He said, oh, yeah, we're Christadelphians and there's a lot of us here that gather around and we we enjoy watching uh, some live music and stuff. Probed a little further, having chatted with him, I said, "Look, I know a little bit about Christadelphian understanding. I know you make a lot about prophecy because every Christadelphian hall I go past has a sign out there telling us about something that's about to take place. But can you tell us? Can you tell me a bit about the distinctives of your beliefs?" And without hesitation, the poor man said, "We believe God is one. We don't believe Jesus is God. We don't believe in the Trinity." And he went on to say a little bit more about what they do believe and about the way they see prophecy working out in Israel and a whole bunch of other things. But he said, Jesus, he's the son of God, but he was born of Mary. He's a man and he's not God. And I made some comment about the fact we could probably have a lengthy discussion about that if we had a bit more time and verses from John's gospel were running through my head like crazy, but the lights dimmed and we then enjoyed the next couple of hours of concert. His faith community, the Christadelphians, they're not the first to think such things, that Jesus is not God. It's been a belief, a heresy for centuries, like even from the early church, going back to the second, third and fourth centuries. There were arguments, there were controversies, there were debates and great meetings about whether Jesus was fully God and fully man or just partly one and partly the other or for a time was this or a time that. It's actually one of the reasons we have what we call the Nicene Creed. We've got the Apostles' Creed, we have the Nicene Creed back in the early 300s AD. There was a council of Nicaea where these two men, it was far more than two men, they're whole parties, but a fellow called Arius and a fellow called Alexander, together with his mate um, Athanasius, um, had this big question about whether Jesus was in fact God. Is he of the same essence as God? Or is he a man who at his baptism had a bit of God come down on him and therefore that was made in God and then left him at his death and resurrection and all these other questions. And they had what we call the Council of Nicaea. Nothing like an elders and deacons meeting, nothing like your local council meeting. This was a whole theological council debate, discussion, determining actually what would be the future of the church and the doctrine of the church. And some of it, there were some guys in the middle that thought, well, there was a bit of this and a bit of that and, and sort of, and it all actually came down to one Greek letter at one point, just one iota, quite literally, a i in the Greek letter. Was he of the same essence, Jesus, the same essence as God or similar essence to God? In the end, with the intervention of the emperor, the Arian position and the middle position were deemed heretical and Alexander was deemed to be true to the scriptures, saying Jesus is fully God and fully man. And out of that we have the Nicene Creed and a confession for the church from that point on to state quite clearly that Jesus is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made. God didn't create Jesus. It's one of the heresies. This other faith community believe. No, he was always there with the Father, of one being with the Father, one substance with the father and then it goes on to speak about the spirit as well which came a little bit later now this morning as i said we're looking at jesus in this series name above all names jesus being the son of man and that very statement that doctrine actually flies in the face of that other man's belief that i met at the concert now you might be thinking hang on son of man wouldn't son of god be more appropriate to talk about and maybe that's correct, but actually Son of Man doesn't just talk about Jesus' humanity. It actually tells us that he is God. We'll see that in a moment. And you see, the Christadelphians they and others, they believe Jesus is the Son of God, but not in the same way we do. They don't take the like Father, like Son far enough. They definitely don't believe he's of the same essence as God and those terms son of god son of man we sort of read them and throw them around but they are jam-packed with meaning and history and context and we often confuse them or at least we give them far less meaning than what they deserve when we read them i'm not going to expand all of that and give you great definitions and go through both of those terms in the scriptures you can do that grab your concordances or look up your iphone if you've got the bible app and just write son of man and see how many times it comes up and read them all be a good little homework over lunch today But this morning we are going to hear a little bit of those verses and what it is that Jesus is the Son of Man. Not just to get our doctrine right, which is actually a good thing to do. (laughs) I'm really grateful they had the Council of Nicaea and established that so early on. But actually so that we might rejoice in who this man is, who Jesus is as the great Son of Man. Because if he isn't, then who is? Who whos who is the Son of Man if it's not Jesus. And if Jesus isn't, then you and I who believe in Jesus are totally lost. We put all our eggs in one basket, trusting in Jesus Christ. And if he's not the Son of Man, all our eggs are going to get broken and we've got nothing. The good news is, be assured, he is the Son of Man. Our eggs are in the right basket. In the Old Testament, uh, the term son of man is used actually in a variety of ways. It's not just one particular term. Sometimes it's used to remind us and teach us of the great dignity and high regard we should have for humanity. Other times it actually reminds us of our very fallen and finite nature. For example, in Job we read, Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in the eyes of God. How much less man, who is a maggot, and the son of man, who is a worm. There you go, your maggots, your worms. That was from Job's very short friend Bildad. He was only a shoe height, and from his very low vantage point, boom, boom. Thank you. Um, he couldn't see much more than the very finite fallen nature of humanity, we're nothing more than worms and maggots. And yet, in the Old Testament, also in the Psalmist, for example, we, they declare the dignity and the honour and the glory of humanity. Psalm 144 O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the Son of man that you think of him? Yes, he goes on, man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. He knows the finiteness of our life compared to God. But he also recognises the high regard even God himself has for humanity. He's blessed us, he's created us, and he's placed us in dominion over all the earth. And so it's good for us to remember and be taught to recognise both aspects of our humanity, the great glory that God's given us as those made in his image, but also our very finite and sadly now fallen nature, the worms and maggots. God himself, Isaiah 51, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you're afraid of man who dies, the son of man who is made like grass? But then we have Psalm 8. I'm sure you know it. When I look to the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, all this great universe you've created, and set in place, what is man? What is humanity that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. So not just great dignity and glory, nor just worms and maggots, but people cared for, Visited by God. And then that phrase, son of man, is also used as a simple address. If you look it up in the Old Testament, there's over 90 times in the book of Ezekiel, simply God addressing Ezekiel as the prophet. Oh, you, son of man, stand on your feet and I'll speak with you. And he puts his spirit upon him. Son of man, set your face towards the mountains of Israel and prophesy against... It's a simple address to a human man. However, there's this one instance in Daniel 7 that we had read for us. How did you describe it, Maureen? That was wild. You thought you had the nice, quiet, comfortable passage. Actually speaking of the same thing. Did you recognise that? But yeah, I don't know what you thought about beasts and kingdoms and be an interesting dream and vision, wouldn't it? I'd be a bit anxious and aware, worried too. But that isolated reference in Daniel 7 provides much of the context and the background for when we see the term son of man in the New Testament. It's actually Jesus' most preferred self-designation. It's what he calls himself. You know when you fill out those medical forms and you've got to fill out your full name and then it says preferred name? <laughs> Jesus would put son of man because <laughs> that's what he uses of himself. In the Gospels, time and time again, he speaks about himself, sometimes quite clearly, sometimes a little bit alluding to it, that he, in fact, is the Son of Man. And when he's doing that, he's referring his readers and us back to that vision, one like a Son of Man in Daniel 7. And so as we use that phrase, as we read that phrase, already this morning we realise it's far more than, it's not just a nickname or Jesus the, the way that Jesus likes to call himself because no one else actually calls him that. It's only on his lips. But it actually is filled with meaning. Uh, Alistair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson, the the ones who wrote the book we're using for this series, he says this phrase, Son of Man, is the most comprehensive description of Jesus' identity, his work, and the significance of his ministry. So next time you read Son of Man in the New Testament, think about that, just what it's jam-packed with. Jesus is the one Daniel sees given dominion and glory and a kingdom as he comes to the ancient of days. He's the one that all peoples and nations and language will serve. He's the one who's given a kingdom which lasts forever and will never be destroyed. And we see that in Jesus' earthly ministry, don't we? Jesus is the son of man, he has authority on earth to heal the sick. He has authority on earth to forgive sins. Can you remember when he healed the paralytic and he said to the man on his mat, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Pharisees are absolutely gobsmacked. You can't say that. You can't do it. Only God can forgive sins. And what does Jesus say? That you may know, well, what is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That is, he's calling not their bluff, but their accusation. He's saying, actually, what you're saying, as far as blasphemy, is actually the truth of what's taking place right here. Only God can forgive sins. And guess what? God is here in your midst. I am the Son of Man, and I have the authority to forgive sins. And to show you that, I say to this man, get up and walk. And he does he rose and went home or when his disciples were caught plucking heads of grain and eating on the Sabbath and they questioned Jesus about that what did he say the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath he's Lord of all and yet as we've already been hearing in some of these messages in this series Jesus also tells us that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The one who reigns over every rule and power, the one who's given a kingdom that will never be destroyed, has nowhere to lay his head. And when they sought a sign from Jesus to prove to him that he was indeed who he claimed to be, Jesus said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. But no sign will be given to this one except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They weren't really sure what he meant by that, but he makes it very clear to his disciples later. He tells them a number of times, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. He will suffer and die and be raised on the third day. So not only does the Son of Man have nowhere to lay his head, the one who is Lord of all is going to suffer and die. But he also says he's going to be raised. And then he alludes to, again sometimes clearly, sometimes not so clearly, that he's going to come again. No one knows the hour of the day, but he will come again. The angels don't know nor the Son, only the Father knows, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, be alert, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. How can this one given all power and authority have no place to lay his head? How can the one who has a kingdom which is going to last forever say he's going to suffer and die? And yet everything Jesus says and everything Jesus does in his earthly life and ministry, he does as the Son of Man. And in fact, it's because of how he does it and what he says and what he does that he is given all power and honour and glory. Because just as we heard last week concerning Jesus, the conquering king, the one who actually, how does he rule? By laying his life down for his people, for his bride. So too this great and glorious son of man, he came not to be served but to serve, didn't he? And to give his life as a ransom for many. The Lord of all, the great Son of Man, actually came to seek and save the lost. Some of us saw on Wednesday night a Bible study. We're looking at the Beatitudes. We did it last night at youth group and something of what I shared with the kids this morning. The world has got things this way and God comes and as we hear in the Sermon on the Mount, just the way Jesus lives and the way he exercises his power and authority, everything's topsy-turvy. It's all upside down. The first are last, the last are first, the exalted are humbled, the humble are exalted. Great power, might and wealth, they're the ones that get all the glory and praise. No, no, the weak, the humble, the poor. It's not brute force or power that conquers in the kingdom of God, is it? It's love. It's not the last man standing who wins, but the one who laid his life down. It's not the one who lords it over all his enemies, who establishes his kingdom forever, squashing everyone else in the process. No, it's the one who loves his enemies, who serves those who hate him. The one who lays his life down, giving it up as a ransom. He's the one who reigns forever. And friends, if we're children of God, that is what we are. John tells us that. Guess what the way we are to live? in his kingdom, here on earth, in the same way. Loving, serving, sacrificial love, laying our life down for one another. As I shared with the children, the world would have us think something very different, wouldn't it? But it's topsy-turvy. The devil would have us believe something very different. Our own sinful hearts struggle to comprehend how it is the weak the lowly and the oppressed could ever end up reigning over the kingdoms of the earth. How can faithful sub- submission ever be so powerful and so fruitful and so glorious? It doesn't sit well with our fleshly ways, does it? But the Son of Man has come and he's shown us that's exactly the way that he reigns. And it's the way of his kingdom. Where was Daniel? Where was he living when he was given this vision? He was in Babylon. A city, the name of which is now used to represent all manner of sin and idolatry and unfaithfulness and licentiousness, anything in opposition to God and his kingdom. He was living there under the reign of a foreign king, foreign laws, foreign religion, idolatry. Wrestling with the culture of his day and trying to work out how he could still remain faithful to his Lord and not compromise that and his way of living, even as he lived in that culture. Trying to work out how to live in the world and not of the world and sometimes put his life on the line for that, didn't he? As did his friends and others who trusted the Lord, Yahweh. Had to work out how to worship God when the worship of the world he was living in was so different and so anti his faith and his worship? A world and culture that marched to a completely different drum. He had to stand apart. He had to live a topsy-turvy life because it didn't fit with the culture of the day in Babylon. It's not unlike our own lives today, is it? Plenty of Babylon still around in our own day, our own culture. So we can read much, learn much from reading how Daniel dealt with that. Grant did a series a few years ago, a little two-part series regarding that. But at the end of Daniel 7, as Maureen explained, wow, you know, glad he was alarmed and anxious, it would worry us too. But Daniel wanted to know what that vision he saw meant. He wanted to learn particularly about what the beasts and the kingdoms were all about. But this is what he's told in verse 23 of Daniel 7. As for the fourth beast, there will be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it will devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten more kings shall rise and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. Now we can try to work out who each of those kings and kingdoms are and some of them in Daniel's day actually took place but we're not going to be able to just try to work that out bit by bit, person by person. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. That's still happening today, isn't it? Very much so. For they shall be given into his hand for a time. For a time, times and half a time. But, verse 26, the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion, this beast, will be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now here is the end of the matter, says Daniel. As for me, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my colour changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Here's Daniel living in the midst of one of those kingdoms, trying to work out, here's a dominion given to a beast. How do I live under that? What hope do I have? How do I get up in another day and think it's worth living? Because there comes a day, it's only for a time, and there comes a day when this one comes and the courts will sit in judgment and every power in opposition to God will be destroyed. And all the kingdoms of the earth under heaven, are given to this one like a son of man and they're given to the saints of the Most High. That's the hope we have today, even as laws are changed, even as we wrestle with our own culture, as we wrestle with the worship and idolatry of our own day and want to worship the Lord our God faithfully. I've just been singing about it. If you go down the street, people will look at you funny if you started singing those songs, wouldn't they? Much easier to come here. But in our day, as it was for Daniel, we can take heart. Yes, there's lots that we should be anxious about and lots that make us change colour, even when we see what's going on in the world and even in our own hearts. But here, there's three things Beg and Ferguson, I think rightly so, point out in this passage. Three things, I'm not going to expand them all. But take note, there is the coming reign of God in the midst of these beasts and these kingdoms that are going to topple the world and change its law. God reigns. And with his reign comes the judgment of all evil. And together with that is the promise of the Son of Man. Christ rules over every principality and power. He is the Son of Man. His is the kingdom that lasts forever. And he reigns now at the Father's right hand, the Ancient of Days. And isn't what we're just hearing here in Daniel 7, the very thing Jesus taught his disciples as they gathered to him on the mountain? We're going to hear it as we pick up Matthew's Gospel after Easter. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall inherit the earth. It's not new stuff. It's here in Daniel, elsewhere in the Old Testament. Isn't it the very promise Adam was given back in Genesis? God blessed them, that first couple, and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. And here's that fulfilled in the Son of Man and in all the saints of the Most High. Remember Zacchaeus, as I told the kids the story, very briefly? And salvation had come to his house. One man, little fella, up in the tree just to get a glimpse. But Jesus saw him, really saw him, and shared with him and spoke with him. And what's the outcome? Changed man. Gives away, pays back, rejoices and follows Christ. And Jesus rejoices and says salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the story of one sinner who was lost who's been sought and saved by the son of man. That's the story of the son of man doing what the son of man does slaying beasts and saving sinners. And I don't know if you've ever been drawn to uh, look carefully at the vision in Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, verse 13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, this one who's sitting on the throne. The Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, came to the Ancient of Days. I think sometimes when we read that we think, here's Jesus, here's the Son of Man, and he's going to come from heaven and go to earth and do what he... No, this is actually the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. Where is he coming from? Coming from his earthly life and ministry. Jesus comes to the Ancient of Days, having lived on earth, suffered and died, being raised from the dead, and now ascended to the right hand. And he receives his power and dominion at the right hand of the Father. Not that he didn't have any power or glory as the Son of God before that. He's the eternal Son. Wasn't that his prayer in John 17? Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before you. It's one of the verses I'm thinking when I'm sitting in there in the theatre. But now he receives that glory and that power and dominion. It's given to him as a man the Son of Man, fully God and fully man. He's now lived, he's been tempted in every way just as we are. He is identified with humanity. He suffered and died for us and bore our sins. And he's now been raised and ascended in his glorified, resurrected humanity to the right hand of the ancient of days, to the Father, paving the way for all of us who believe in him to receive the same resurrection body, and to appear with him in glory. And as I said, Philippians 2. Sounds like the easier reading, doesn't it? But it's exactly the same. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, You see, the other thing Jesus says about the Son of Man when he refers to himself is the Son of Man must suffer and die. It is necessary, is the phrase he uses. It has to happen. He must suffer and die. And they didn't understand that. It's the point, one of those points when Peter is rebuked and Jesus says to him, or he tries to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus says to him, Get behind me, Satan. Why? Why? Because Satan would do anything to stop the Son of God, the Son of Man, taking his rightful position on that throne above all power and authority. As strange as it might seem, Satan, if he could, would have stopped Jesus going to the cross to suffer and die. Because that is how he receives his dominion and power and authority. This is how Jesus would show himself not only to his father but to all the world and all the principalities and powers that he is worthy to receive glory and honour and power. And he did and he has and he's now been declared by the spirit to be the son of God raised from the dead and the son of man as depicted in Daniel's vision as he goes to the ancient of days to receive that kingdom. And he will come again. As we heard, we don't know when, but he will. He will come to judge the living and the dead. He'll separate the sheep and the goats. And he will take with him all the children of God to resurrection glory. And when he does, he'll stand there before all heaven and say, behold, I and the children God has given me. And we as the saints of the Most High, guess what? We'll receive that kingdom and that same glory in Christ. At one point Jesus said, Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, this is to his disciples, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake, they will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom forever and forever and ever. So, says Paul, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any encouragement in knowing the Son of Man has dominion, whatever is taking place in the kingdoms of earth. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy